everyone. Welcome to today's episode of Forward Thinking. You got Christy and Charlie here. And today we have a special guest. We have Alex Krawchick, who's the founder and CEO of Clearly. Um, some of you may know Alex already, but we're excited to have him on today to get his opinions on pretty much like all things reporting and measurement and, and really getting his hot takes on attribution and what you know, marketers are maybe doing wrong when they're trying to get their insights in what to do uh, with their marketing. So um, I just want to kick it off uh, to you, Alex, and can you introduce yourselves to people who don't know you already and also how you got to where you are um, with starting clearly? Yeah, certainly, Chrissy. Thanks very much. That was a great intro and um, nice to see you both. And, and thank you both for having me on the podcast. I sincerely appreciate it. Uh, love to talk about these things. So again, um, name's Alex Krawchick. I'm the founder and CEO of Clearly. And, um, you know, really quickly, clearly what we're about is just helping revenue teams understand what is the most important thing that we can do next. Um, that really is taking action on data. What's the next best action? So, you know, my background, um, I was in marketing for over 20 years. I actually did sales. A lot of people don't know that about me. I did sales for two years. Uh, and, you know, really big company, small company over the last 20 years. I started my career really at IBM, um, went to, you know, both large and small companies, growth size companies, was very fortunate to surround myself with great people, um, have had, you know, really good successes and experiences. And, um, you know, what happened was for me is about, you know, I'd call it about 10, 15 years ago, I really started getting frustrated um, with the amount of data, you probably heard the term out there, data rich, information poor. And that was getting frustrating to me. I felt like we were serving our tools and our tools weren't serving us, but I didn't have an answer. You know, I was just continuing to, to propagate the, the vicious cycle. I was creating data. My teams and I were creating data. Um, but, but something happened to me and I was actually at uh, here, here actually in Cary, North Carolina, you may have heard of the company SAS, SAS, the big business analytics company, you know, $3 billion privately held company. I was there. And when I realized there was that, okay, there's a real opportunity here um, for us to take better advantage of data. So, um, you know, Christy and Charlie, we actually haven't even, I don't think we've talked about this yet, but I went back to grad school at 40 years old. Um, I felt so passionate about you know, our lack of, you know, what I say is exploiting data, but taking advantage of data. I was so frustrated and I had never, I wasn't a technical other than, you know, doing the normal stuff that we do in MarCops and things like that. Um, I had never really lit, lit, um, written any code other than some HTML and things like that. But I went full steam into a, you know, a data science program at Northwestern and, um, you know, long story short, two and a half years, I finished up and I said, okay, all those things that I thought were possible are actually possible through the use of data. The good news is, and I'm sure we'll get into this, a lot of people think they don't have enough data or they don't have the right data. What I knew is we had the data, we just needed to take better advantage of it. So, you know, I'm a recovering marketing professional. Um, you know, I got frustrated with where we were. And one day, you know, almost four years ago now to the day, I woke up and I said, I, I just can't continue to be a marketing professional. I need to go out there and build a tool that's going to help people take action on their data. So, so I was just going to ask you, where do you think that comes from with marketers being so hungry for, for more and more and more data? Like where, where, where does that stem from? Yeah, 
I, I think I have the answer to it, Charlie. And I think, um, you know, it's a great question. And I think it really comes, we're going to talk about attribution. I think we've been trying to prove the contribution of marketing in teams and organizations. And as a result, we've gotten into this horrible, vicious cycle of, you know, collecting more data, but really, and we're going to, I know we're going to talk about this is like the reason why I'm a big fan of principled thinking and, you know, the reason why, and I've spent years thinking about this, why did we want those data? Like, why were we clamoring for all that information? And at the end of the day, the answer is we wanted to know what to do. Mm-hmm. And, but, but we, we lost sight of that. We just said, okay, let's continue to collect data. Data is tangible. So we get excited about it. Right. So we build these systems, we build these technologies, but we've actually ended up hurting ourselves in the long run because we continue to invest in these systems of technologies and data and these sophisticated processes and lead management programs and account management programs. And at the end of the day, we've lost sight of the fact that the most important thing we can do with data is really understand what should we be doing next in order to help improve the business. Um, so I think yeah. that's one of the main reasons that we've gotten, um, you know, kind of, we've tricked ourselves along the way. Yeah, I think uh, over time it, it became this narrative to see levels of like getting your seat at the table. And it was always kind of, you need to show your contribution to revenue. And I think that took a downward spiral to say, okay, what data do I have? How can I prove my contribution? How can I prove that I actually brought this revenue in? And more and more, every dashboard was like, I need a way, I need a reporting that can do that. And mm-hmm. and no fault to the, you know, the other, some vendors even too that sell the attribution where they know it's actually to give marketers the, you know, the insights into improving their marketing, but they know what actually sells is how can I get that C-level to invest in this tool? Oh, let me tell them it's going to be a sales and marketing alignment um, solver. It's going to be your way to prove your, you know, your contribution and gain, and, you know, essentially, you know, keep your seat at the table. And, and that's where I think a lot of this stems from. And unfortunately marketers don't, I don't think need to do that. I think it's more, it does it's not proving the contribution. If anything, the whole revenue team is working together toward driving revenue and it needs to be a collective thing rather than a siloed, um, you know, proving yourself in general. Yeah. And I'm, it's, it's easy for me. I mean, I, I'm not judging anyone, you know, when I say these things, because, you know, the whole reason I started building this company was, again, I, I looked in the mirror and I said, what we're doing is just not efficient. It's not effective. Mm-hmm. And I've talked with enough people. You know, one of the things for me, especially is before I took on any outside money, you know, we're venture back company. I really went out there and I knew that this was a thing, but I went out and talked with enough friends and even non-friends to get an unbiased opinion. Everybody's dealing with the same pain. I mean, everybody, I I don't know about you all. I'd love to hear your perspective. I've talked with several, you know, CMOs and CROs and CEOs, even recently CFOs. And they have said to me explicitly that they're so frustrated and apathetic. They're thinking about burning down their entire stack. These are the words that they use burning it all down and starting over. And yet they don't know what that roadmap looks like. Are you all hearing that? And kind of what, what's the pain that you're hearing? Yeah, maybe not that level of extreme, <laughs> although I feel like some people, like when they speak to their spouse late at night, they're probably saying they wish they could do that. Maybe maybe we don't hear that. But 
I think a lot of that comes down to just the amount of technical debt that's been accumulated, the fact that all of these companies are moving at just light speed and building the plane while it's flying. And I know they have to do that. And obviously, you know, that's just part of, I mean, the companies we work with are like very fast growing startup, mid-market companies like going towards IPO and maybe a bit beyond. So they have to do that. The problem with that is that when you build a plane uh, while flying it or build, you build multiple planes while flying them, some are going to crash and many are going to have problems. Yeah. Um, and then you spend all your time actually now in the air trying to fix the plane to make sure it doesn't crash. You're not really turning it into like the next Concorde or, you know, the, the actual efficient plane that's going to help you get to your destination quicker. So then, and, and Charlie, to expand on that analogy too, the, I love your plane analogy, by the way. And, <laughs> you know, what I'm seeing in my career is marketing people have the marketing function has the highest turnover of any other function um, in the, in the company. In fact, I, I know this just because from all my pitch decks over the years, but, you know, um, I'm trying to think of who, who did the research, if it was HBR or, uh, or Forrester, but long story short, um, so I can't attribute the source right now. I'll get back to you on that. But essentially CMOs have the shortest tenure in the C-suite yep. by far. Mm -hmm. It's like half. And, and I can tell you, I've experienced that. Like not only in my own role, but my, my you know, supervisors and above. I mean, the, the, it's because they're jumping off the plane, Charlie. That's where I'm tying it back to your, right. your metaphor. They're jumping Hopefully off the plane before they, without a, <laughs> and they're trying to jump on another plane. And the same thing's going to happen on that plane until we get to a point where we can actually have a seat at the table. And instead of, you know, the other thing, the other metaphor here is instead of, we need to switch as marketers, we need to switch, we need a tool or tools to shift from playing defense to playing offense. And, and that's really like fundamentally where we are right now. And we haven't had those tools until now. I think just right now we're starting to get to a point where we can, we can almost, you know, um, I, I'm trying to get, again, work on your metaphor, Charlie, but almost, we could almost fly the plane while we're, while we're building it as well. Yeah. I think the tenure as well is like, it's so short. Like, I think it's, I think I know that same research, but I think it was like two and a half years or something was the average. And I, I think the hard part with that too, I think a lot of the times uh, certain people in the company don't realize that marketing takes time. And if anything, you probably were measuring that CMO on all the stuff the person before them that came in was doing. Mm -hmm. And, and that's the same thing. I think when it comes to you know, flying the plane, you know, while building it, uh, I think marketing just needs to realize you, they need to be a bit more considered and put a bit more time into things. And even as for our company, as we evolve and sophisticate, yes, there's a period of time where you don't need to be as sophisticated and you just need to really get started. But I think if you look at this time of the building the foundation and building a great foundation that you won't end up getting to a place where you just need to burn things to the ground. But I think we just expect so much at some early stage where you kind of just need to build, 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 and not put a lot of thought into it. I think that's where marketers realize, okay, well, there's things that take time. Building a foundation takes time, you know, having enough can't, you know, having time to measure your campaigns and build revenue takes time. And, and then when you have a new change that can even delay things even more. And so 
we always want like these instant results or instant things that we can see. And unfortunately that's not so much the case. And, um, I think the tech world, like if anything, our surroundings and our environment have taught us to want things instantly, you know, you can get a toothbrush in like three hours, you know, but like, it's not the same thing when it comes to marketing, unfortunately. Yeah. We, uh, you know, I, I also, I, I can appreciate what you're saying too, in terms of growth mode. You know, I was, I was responsible for a, a demand team for a Sequoia back company. And let me tell you, I mean, if you, every month, if you didn't get those numbers, yeah. I mean, and, and so what we ended up having to do is, you know, and we've all done this as, as marketing operations, revenue operations, professionals duct tape it together. And I knew that I, I, I just, there were just weren't enough hours in the day um, to be able to, I knew two years from then, I was going to be really kicking myself um, because, or, you know, people after me, unfortunately, you know, they were going to have to clean up the mess. Um, but that it was just a, it was inevitable. Um, but I do think, you know, there is a, there's definitely a light at the end of the tunnel. Um, you know, what I say to people all the time is, and I've been saying this for probably about 10 years, you know, collect all the data that you possibly can and store it. Don't delete it because at some point, there are going to be smart systems out there that can go back retroactively and really start to do the pattern recognition and understand how you grew, grew your business. So I always tell people, uh, I'm going to pick on, um, well, I won't say the name publicly, but I was using one marketing automation system for many years. And it was crazy to me. They were almost incenting, incentivizing customers to like, you know, to go up another tier, it was another $100,000 because I was at the point where the contacts and leads, you know, mm. were, you know, I was above 100,000 or whatever the number was. And in order, if I didn't want to have to pay that, I would have to get rid of all those contacts and leads, right? And that to me, it just broke my brain because it was like, wait a second, we're telling people to delete data, essentially. Like, this is completely backwards. We should actually be, you know, charging less for the more data that you have. Um, so it, it just broke my brain. And that's one of the things I actually candidly were thinking about it clearly is we want to incent people to actually create more data because the more data you have now, we've gotten to a point where systems can take advantage of the data, uh, and really be able to help you drive the business forward. Yeah. I think the thing on deleting is, um, we're actually an advocate for, and I, you know, if you have a tool like Marketo, they're charging you for the amount of records you have. And, you know, you, there, you get to the point where, keeping the data in Marketo might might not make the most sense, you know, for like really old and like junky data. So we like to call it archive, you know, take it out, put it in a warehouse, data warehouse somewhere or data lake and just store it somewhere. And maybe you might want to take advantage of it in the future. Um, but I like to advise all my clients, I don't say the word delete, let's just call it archive. You're going to keep <laughs> right. it. The only other problem is GDPR and all that kind of stuff. You probably need to be a bit considered about where your data's come from and how long you should really be keeping it for, like legitimately, and you probably need to actually delete it. But, um, yeah, but even archiving it, it char even archiving <laughs> it, right? Like I, that is then a big project that I would have to bring in, you know, another team to help me. It's another thing that I needed to do with my MarTech stack, you know, Frankenstack, that we now I needed to bring in an EDW to house all the different data. I mean, it was like, again, the big company, the marketing automation platform was not really thinking about me, the customer, and not empathizing with what I needed at the time. They were just thinking about themselves. When in turn, if I could have left all that data in that system, or at least found a good way to do it, or at least put it in an archive, as you said, I would have been able to use that data more effectively moving forward. I just didn't want to 
you know, um, decouple the data sources completely because there's an advantage to keeping it all together. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So then, um, so kind of bringing it back around to, to attribution, which is what we, what we really want to kind of dive in, dive in with you today. And, um, and actually one of the things I wanted to mention, and we actually even did a survey on tenure, um, and it was mainly focused on marketing arts, but but B2B marketing people filled it out too. And I think the average was three jobs every five years. So, you know, people aren't really sticking around for much longer than a year, which is, which is crazy. But um, I think a lot of that, you know, comes down to some of the stuff we were talking about, but then to kind of align that to what we're going to talk about with attribution today, one of the things we talk about a lot um, for marketing operations professionals or actually anyone in, in B2B marketing is if you really want to differentiate yourself and you want to be strategic, getting into the analytics realm, being able to dig into data, uncover patterns, test hypothesis, be able to create a narrative, share that with your CMO, who's probably about to get, you know, lose their job potentially, if, if they're going to be the statistic um, and is struggling and needs that data, maybe doesn't have the background and how to interpret that data, needs some help and needs some help from you. That's one really one way for you to differentiate yourself and really level up in, in your career. But at the same time, there's so many pitfalls and issues and and like things people need to be aware of with attribution data and where a lot of people go wrong um so i'd love to hear from you um, when it comes to marketers using attribution data and reporting like where do you where do you see people going wrong oh i mean this could this could i mean i guess it is i was gonna say it's a podcast in and of itself and we may run out of time even on this one charlie and this is (laughs) such a loaded i've obviously thought a lot of times you know about this topic um, and anybody that knows me knows I've thought a lot of time on this topic. I've spent a lot of time on this topic. I think, you know, again, using principled thinking, I think, first of all, um, attribution for me is a dirty word. And I'll, I'll, I'll explain why very simply. We lost sight, and I kind of, ref, you know, referred to this um, uh, a little bit earlier. We lost sight. We, we thought of attribution as the end when it was really just the means to an end. And attribution for us, to Christy's point earlier, it wasn't about, you know, it should never have been about establishing credit. It should have been about improving the business. And that's one of the main reasons when I go to market and I talk to people, they say, oh, you're an attribution tool. And I say, no, actually, that's not what we are. And I'm going to unpack it and tell you why attribution specifically is flawed. One of the main reasons is attribution just looks backward. If you can do attribution effectively, if you can do it, and we'll unpack that, if you can do attribution effectively, you're still only looking backward. And what you're essentially saying is, okay, webinars were good three months ago. We should continue to do webinars. That's an absolutely flawed and overly, overly simplistic way of, of looking at things from an attribution perspective. And again, I'm not judging because I have been, it, it's, I've been in people's shoes. I've walked my own customer's shoes for the last 20 years. I understand how difficult it is And, you know, what I want to say is, again, attribution, we need to reframe, we need to think differently about how we use these information, what it really should be is about not what we've done, but what can we do. Um, And that's where the power of predictive analytics and machine learning comes in. So I'll stop there. And I'll talk specifically, but I certainly want to hear your thoughts on that. It shouldn't be about looking backward, it should be looking forward. Yeah, I'd love to dig into that. Because I think whenever you whenever you're looking at a report, it's always historical, right? Like you can't get data on what hasn't happened yet. 
So I'd love to know. Well, I know, I mean, you can, you can predict, right. But you can't be like, but like that prediction is going to be based on data that you've got, or at least tell me where I'm wrong here. I'd love to know how that, because even a predictive model Mm -hmm. generally is looking at data, like matching what things are more common or increased likelihood for close rate or what things are more closely associated to closed one opportunities. So isn't that all still historical data? So Charlie, let me me ask you and Chrissy a question. Let me (laughs) me ask you and Chrissy a question. Have you both ever flown on an airplane? Yes. Okay. Did you trust that that airplane was going to be safe? Yes. Yeah. Yeah, you flew on it, right? Um, well, the, you know, GE, for example, has been using predictive analytics in their engines and their aircraft engines for the last 50 years. And we don't think twice about, you know, not flying on an airplane. We trust all those things. And it took time, right? It took time to be able to get to, to trust those things and for us as, as users, as customers to trust those things. And, you know, what's happening with predictive analytics right now. And, and I talk, I kind of, you know, kid with you about the, the, uh, George Box was a famous statistician and he said, all models are wrong, but some mm-hmm. are useful. Yeah. And that is exactly what we're saying. Like we, today, if we're honest with ourselves as revenue professionals, okay, we are guessing at what to do. And we are sitting on a pile of what I call dark data, data that we have not is collecting digital cobwebs that we have not exploited. And that was one of the reasons why I started clearly. It was like, okay, we can use predictive analytics on all these data, even if we're 1% better than guessing. You ask, show me a CFO who wouldn't take a 1% improvement on their top line revenue. Um, and you know, I'll show you someone without a job. Um, so, I mean, that, that is what we're talking about here is just being marginally, you know, and over time, mm-hmm. over the next few years, we're all collectively going to get smarter about how we use data. The ML, the beauty of machine learning is it's, it's a self-learning system. So it gets smarter over time. Every single time in our model, it's updating every single day. So everything you did yesterday is going to affect what is recommendation, what is recommended today. Cause it's a self same thing with the aircraft engines. They got smarter over time and now they fail less often, thankfully for all of us. Yeah. I love the 1% thing. Cause I think I even posted about this the other day. Um, incremental yeah every day you're like 37 37 times better by the end of the year um and so i'd love to ask i'd love to dig into this even a little bit more because um what i'm hearing and i want to make sure this is right or or tell me where there's more nuance than this but you know everyone the machine learning um model is still looking at the same data that a human would be looking at if they built, you know, a dashboard or if they were looking, but the human is looking at it from like a, you know, a simplistic way and they've maybe got their own bias or they're, you know, they, it's harder for them to like scale kind of like all of that data and input and like really come up with the right thing to do next. But, but they're still probably like, you know, a human could still look at some, some like a dashboard or attribution dashboard or whatever and draw some insights and help be, be maybe half a percent better every day. Uh, is what you're saying that machine learning ex- basically builds on that. It's far more sophisticated and you will, it's better than a human doing it. Therefore, you will be like 3% better every day. Is that kind of like, is, is that what you're saying or is there, is there kind of more to what you're saying um, than, than what I just described there? Yeah. 
So probably that and, and more, Charlie, I, I think one of the things that we need to, and, and you nailed it, I think one of the biggest issues, and let's just focus on that for a second, is the scale. So we as humans cannot process data beyond a certain point, right? I mean, there've been lots of studies. I think even like Facebook have done a study and others like you can have no more than, I forget if it's like 24 people in your network beyond it, beyond that, it goes to like noise. It's the same thing when we're processing data as humans. And again, I've done this. I've been, and you all have done it as well. You can't do it. You can't look at all of your opportunities. And I'm using Salesforce lingo because that's what I was used to, but you know, you can't look at all of your opportunities or deals to include HubSpot in that nomenclature and, and expect to be able to, as a, as a human entity, understand all the touch points relative to wins and losses and really understand what is influencing those wins and losses. And yes, you know, predictive analytics, anybody tells you that they can establish causality and, and here we are, March 31st, 2021, no one has yet figured out causality, but the correlations are strong enough where you can start mm -hmm. to infer causality. Okay. And that's what we're doing. We're seeing enough data. We, we, you know, one of the is other issues that I had really with, with attribution, Charlie is, um, you know, why were we only looking at marketing data? That was a huge flaw for me. I wanted to be able to look at sales data as well. We know as revenue professionals, sales and marketing are doing, they're, they're literally marching toward the same goal, but they're doing it so often on islands without real, we talk about alignment, but there really hasn't been data guided alignment with what we've been doing with sales and marketing. And so what, what my belief was always, let's take sales and marketing data together and understand with machine learning the patterns. It's anybody that tells you predictive analytics is hard, they're lying to you. You know, it's really just pattern identification and understanding, um, you know, what, what, what's influential and what's not. The other thing, I told you to get me started here, Charlie. The <laughs> other thing, the other thing that attribution did not do is negative influence. And bear with me on this one mm. because, you know, there are losses that are happening. In attribution, a lot of times, we always looked at wins. Well, we didn't really look at the losses. And again, to be able to do that at scale, and losses, right? The best business I've ever worked in, we had a 25% win rate. So let's just take that as, as a moment for, you know, let's say we, we have a thousand opportunities created every, every single year. 750 of those opportunities were losses. Why were we not looking at the loss data at scale to understand what's happening? So with, again, predictive analytics, what we can do and machine learning is be able to look at all the, you know, outcomes, not just positive outcomes, but negative outcomes. We can we can start to understand, are there certain activities that we're doing in certain customer segments, which are having a negative effect on win probability and outcome? So I'll stop there and lots of stuff probably to unpack with that. So what do you say to someone who isn't, doesn't have clearly or doesn't have um, any predictive analytics solution? maybe isn't going to invest in something like that for a while, right? They're maybe not at the mm -hmm. maturity, but they still want to be able to make data-driven decisions. Are you saying that it's impossible to make data-driven decisions? Or are you saying that no, no. you can and there will be incremental benefit, but if you really want to take it seriously, you need to have a predictive model? 
Yeah. I mean, listen, I think for every single company, it's going to depend on your size, right? And it's crawl, walk, run. So no, I'm certainly not saying that you shouldn't do some level of attribution, um, Mm -hmm. traditional attribution, what I would say is, but you know, you're going to get to a point where you really do want to be able to um, have a truly data guided approach and be able to understand Again, one of the flaws with attribution, if, if today's attribution, if you just look at attribution, it's historical, it doesn't account for what you should do next. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, if you could go into it and that's, be, that's, the, that's the challenge, Charlie, be able to say to your CFO and CEO and others and have enough of a backbone to say, you know what, caveat, we've done attribution, but it's only looking at the last six months, the last 12 months. It's not making recommendations in terms of what to do next. Set realistic expectations and say, that's okay for where we are today as a business. Six months from now, we need to be at a point where we're leveraging predictive analytics to be able to help us make, take you know, data guided next best actions. Yeah. I, I think from my like outside perspective, I think that when we think about time being as scarce as it is, especially on a marketing team, I think having some type, but instead of investing in more people, um, be, which they never will at the same rate that you kind of need to is for a lot of companies, but if anything, you know, use a tool that can help that person just be more effective in what they're meant to do. And I think it's drawing those insights on like what to do next, but then where a human makes sense, because I do think we have the, the, you know, predictive analytics, we have the tech to help us do this, but still having a human to do some of that intervention because you have different sources of data that you also need to keep in mind, but they're really going to be creating that narrative. And I think we talk about that a lot too, is, you know, there's the data and the dashboards. And I think that's where a lot of people spend their time, but they never really spend where they need to spend the majority of the time is actually like make sense of that data, create a narrative and, and report that back in a way that makes sense to people. Mm-hmm. Um, and so for, for you guys, I think being that decision-making platform or, you know, that's key in that first step to helping them create that narrative. Let me ask you both or put a question back to you. Um, How much time do you think you spent in your demand positions interpreting data per week? What percentage of time? For our business or for our clients? I mean, you you choose. You tell me. It might be easier to think probably like back in-house. Yeah, back in-house. Yeah, think in-house. That's probably the best way to do it. Which was a while ago, which was about six years ago now. Or maybe we can think on behalf of our clients so the question is how many how much time interpret trying to understand the data yep. I, I would say um for a for a marketing ops person that is doing what we would advise which is like trying to own analytics or, and obviously if you have working for a really big company you probably have an analytics division but like where they are able to own analytics and build that narrative i think at spending you know 20 percent of your time, like help trying to get into the data, understand it, building that narrative somewhere around there. Um, But it really, I think it's so hard to answer that question because it really depends on kind of the maturity of the company, the maturity of the person, the maturity of their data, you know, what the company- I'm questioning your maturity, Charlie. Right, yeah. (laughs) And my own's too immature, but probably what what you're trying to get at is probably that they they spend too much time trying to interpret the data. So having something that can make that more efficient um will be helpful and and i, yeah, I, I mean, would definitely yeah. a- agree with that like the amount of time the, the other thing as well i'll probably say to add on to that 
probably dub like that time as well, like double in just building reports, right? Like, so like we're just creating reports all the time, like for every, everything under the sun. And one of the things that Alison and our team really advocates for is building a whole analytics framework, which includes kind of, these are the, these are the primary dashboards and reports that we look at. You know, this is going to answer most of your questions. This is how you use them. This is the cadence that you use them. This is how to draw insight out of them. And then that is kind of where everyone goes as opposed to just like every day, just creating a new report for every individual thing. I mean, of course you're going to have to do that, but um, so yeah, there's, there's a lot of time spent on that, but I think it varies based on so many factors. Yeah, and, and to your point, I mean, and, and I think both of you probably will say like the time that you need just to sit and create the dashboards and reports or reports and dashboards, I guess, in Salesforce nomenclature, like that to me, that is separate from just sitting there and actually looking at the Thinking reports and the data mm-hmm. and trying mm-hmm. to interpret them. And Chrissy, to your point, this is where I'm going. Like, you're absolutely right. What we want to do as revenue professionals is sit down and I'll say this again, you know, we've been serving our tools rather than our tools serving us. We want to sit mm-hmm. down and we want to be told, what should I be doing today? I've yeah. got all the data, you know, miss, miss or Mr. System. Like, why aren't you telling me what I should be doing to drive revenue for my company? Where am I also, where are my wasted resources? Where am I spending that's even either having, you know, immaterial effect or deleterious effect on, on revenue? Like these systems aren't telling us that information. And that for me, again, was one of my frustrations and um, yeah, so. You're right, yeah, you have to uncover that. And I think yeah, my position is that you can uncover that with, with your existing data set, but it obviously is very time consuming, takes a lot of thinking and you have to, you have to be quite advanced in how you, how you personally think about it and, and not everyone is there yet. And I think what I'm hearing from you is that predictive analytics would, is a shortcuts you know, a lot of that. And it, it could be used by a, someone who isn't an analytics absolute expert, right? It can be used by someone who um, is just kind of a generalist or any marketer in the business. And that's one of the big problems actually that I have with attribution. I like attribution, but what uh, big problems I have is how you roll out, how you roll it out to the team. Because mm-hmm. you as a marketing operations person, you might understand it. But I, nine times out of 10, the rest of the team have no like don't understand it and then often what will happen is they start digging into the data and they'll they'll find examples where it didn't make sense like in a w-shaped model and they're like why did this touch point get 30 percent of this one not and they don't trust it and then it kind of like all loses steam and actually i'll turn that into a question because one of the one of the um one of the issues that i have sometimes with you know anything predictive, uh, anything that's using an algorithm to determine, you know, what you should do or whatever is, is the black box nature of some of these. Mm, let's talk about that. Where you yep. can't, you're like, oh, this is telling me to do this mm-hmm. or, you know, like a predictive lead score is a good example, right? Like I'll, so often I'll roll out uh, a predictive lead scoring tool. The salesperson will like message the mops person and say, why is this person a high predictive score? They're like a, a student that isn't even in our ICP. So then, you know, they lose trust in it. And then it kind of is very hard to get them to use that data ongoing. Um, but how do you tackle that problem? And how do you think about that problem to be able to give people the rationale why this is the right m- next move? Yeah. Uh, so again, Charlie, love this question. Um, this 
I've thought deeply about this for many years. This comes down to trust. And, and I will say that I'm, I'm not going to name names again, but I was the customer of a predictive lead scoring solution many years ago. And fortunately, I, I was technical enough where I understood it. In fact, I would get together with their data scientists and pick apart and like understand the model. Most people don't have that understanding and the ability to actually do that. And so mm -hmm. I, that black box mentality was out there. So actually, I'll just kind of toot our own horn. Like one of our core company values is actually, well, two of them are empathy and trust. And we've, we've deconstructed that argument about like, how do we start to build trust in these predictive analytics algorithms? And one of the things we've landed on is back to your W-shaped, like when you immediately see W-shaped or first touch, last touch, it doesn't matter. People start to doubt things because at the end of the day, what you really want to look at are all the touches. And that's what we're doing with Clearly. Like you can't, you can't just look at like one of the touches or three of the touches. You've got to look at all the touches and what the beauty of predictive analytics is doing at the end of the day, it's really, it's pulling out the patterns in the data. So it's telling you which interactions were actually significant and not significant. Again, both negative and, and positive influence. Um, yeah, so, so for me, um, you know, the black box, what, one of the ways we do that in our product is to be able to surface, just show in a, let's use a single account as an example. Um, and, and I'm sorry, I don't mean this to be specific about clearly, but I'm saying like one of the ways to break this down is to give the user and build trust, show them what happened inside a single account over mm -hmm. the last 12 months, just show to me, show me all the touch points that have occurred. And what you can start to do, you need to build just enough trust with these products to get people to believe them to move on and then use them. They don't want to know. I've seen vendors out there that are showing people, um, one of them is a very, very large vendor that we all know, um, adjusted R square values and coefficients. And it's like, what? Like if I ever show one of my customers an adjusted R square value or coefficient, I've, I've failed, right? They just want to know, show me the things in like, I have a first grader, like show me things like uh, in first grade terms that I can understand that will help build just enough trust. And so we're finding things in data that can help our customers really start to build that trust. And again, Charlie, to your point is break down that black box. Have we solved for that entirely? Absolutely not. But, and I'm not just talking about clearly or us as marketing professionals, we're explainable AI is a thing that has been out there in the market. I don't know if you've, you've heard about that. It is a thing as, as we as data science professionals, we are paying attention to explainable AI because before people want to use a self-driving car, an autonomous car, they want to know why is the car doing these things? The trolley, the trolley example, right? We've got to build enough trust with users and we're thinking about that very deeply. But one of the ways is just to give people line of sight and exposure to the data that's behind, show them the data that you've evaluated. And that in and of itself starts to build a foundation of trust. Yeah, I, I think that that totally makes sense. And I, I, we, I think we agree with you with taking in all of the touch points because we're like big fans of the linear model um, for that reason. So, but I, I think moving away from that, I think one of the things that constantly comes up in, in our conversations around, you know, decision-making and attribution when it comes to deciding where to invest and what channels to, um, you know, continue to do um, is these is the concept of invisible touch points. I think more and more um, marketers sometimes are worried about, you know, doing a certain tactic because they can't actually like report on it and, or they're, you know, 
confused on, they just think everything needs to just be on, you know, that one report or even be able to draw the insights based on the data. And, and what's, what's kind of your advice or what your thought on that? Um, because, you know, any tool will, will likely not pick those up, but how do you make sense of that? Like, how do you include that in some of your reporting and narrative? Yeah. So it's a good question, Chrissy. And, and, and I think, um, you know, one of the things we're looking at, this is a whole, there are lots of ways we could take this. Um, again, back to my earlier point, collect as much data as you possibly can. Um, and, and don't, you don't need to analyze it, like leave that up to the vendor to go ahead and analyze that, but capture it in a system, whether, and now we're talking about, right, the cookie-less future, what does that even look like? So we're, we're starting to get into these, like, what does a web visitor even look like in the future? But there are things like, you know, most of us are still gating our content. Um, most of us can identify, you know, do the reverse IP lookup to identify who's in an account, um, you know, those types of things. Make sure your systems are collecting as much data as possible. Um, you know, and, 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 you know, the other thing I'll say is this, if as users, we should no longer, it's now 2021, we should no longer think that we have to do all the heavy lifting. Ask your vendors to do the hard work. I can't tell you how many times as an ex operator, I would have to spend six to nine months, in some cases a year, helping the vendor do the heavy lifting of implementation. I'm sorry, put that on the vendor. Help the vendors should be figuring out those invisible touch points. The vendors should be doing all of that hard work, whether it's in R&D or actually in production. Um, you know, one of the things I'll, I'll share a little bit in the weeds, Chrissy, but like back to invisible, you know, we, we talk about channel a lot, but one of the things we're thinking about at clearly, and we're actually doing right now is offer versus tactic. Like the mm -hmm. tactic is one thing, but then what was the offer? Mm -hmm. And a lot of times those data are available, you know, typically in like a URL parameter or something like that. The vendor has to do the heavy lifting to deconstruct that information and put it into a database, a data schema that can be exploited from a predictive analytics perspective. Again, so I think we as users need to ask more from our vendors and put more pressure, push back on them. We should not be paying a quarter of a million dollars a year annual contract for one of these vendors where they're asking us to be doing any heavy lifting. We should be doing that all our on the vendor side. Um, you know, we as marketing professionals, we have enough to do. We have enough things to do right now. We got to manage our tech <laughs> stack, right, right Charlie? Um, and and so we shouldn't also plan. have to. We shouldn't also have to hire um, additional people to help us onboard a vendor. That's just, yeah. And and the vendor should be looking at those invisible touch points as much as possible, Chrissy. Yeah. Can I? I, I might dive into that a little bit deeper as well. And um, because one of the some of the backlash around just attribution is, is, a, is basically what Chrissy was just saying there with, you know, people will look at the dashboard and be like, I don't see podcast influencing opportunities. So I should, I should stop my podcast or I don't see, you know, my link, I, I don't see LinkedIn comments on my dashboard. So I should stop posting to LinkedIn and their argument, which I, I see a lot of truth in that argument. Their argument is that those could even be the best, some of the best channels, right? Like, starting a podcast, getting um, that's kind of your brand out there. You speak from experience, right? All that kind of stuff, right? Yes. So um, so that, that argument I think is solid. And where potentially I could see um, that argument extrapolating to predictive is that 
predictives go in that extra step. So when you when you look at attribution data, a human is looking at it, and then a human creates that narrative for the CMO and says, "Okay, look, these are these are kind of like the channels that are working for all of these reasons, but also the podcast. Like, I've looked at you know ever since we started the podcast, I've noticed like mm-hmm. more web traffic and." You know, we, we're getting, well, I'm hearing from the reps, like every, all of the, all of our new deals are like listeners from the podcast and they can take all of this other data and kind of piece it together, like in a way that maybe only a human can, because it's not actually data that you're capturing in, in any place. I mean, you could potentially capture that. Like well, then where are you, else. if it's not captured in any place, Charlie, where are you looking at it? Well, I think the, a lot of the, the people who talk about this, it's like, they're like, oh, I'm just hearing this from the field, you know? I mean, I would go to, I could, I could say, okay, well, you should start asking people and obviously asking people where, why they bought or like what content they engage with is not very good because no one generally remembers. But, you know, if you did ask people and you'd see that on a closed one up, like this was a podcast listener or something, but those invisible touch points are very difficult to get anywhere. Right. Mm-hmm. So there is a bit of kind of like art and gut feeling to knowing mm-hmm. that those channels are working. So then what would you say to some, like, do, do you still need that? When you have predictive, obviously it's getting very specific about you should do this, you should do that, and this is why. But it's probably not going to say like, you should do a podcast or you should carry on posting to LinkedIn because you're not able to tie that stuff to revenue throughout your CRM or any other marketing automation platform. So so two at, things. At this point. Uh, yeah, so two things. And it's a great question. First of all, find a way to track it from a data perspective. Um, work with your vendor to, to find, I'll, I'll tell you, like, if someone came to us with that problem, we're going to find a way to get the data. Um, there, there are very, if you have a good tech team, which I'm very fortunate to have people much smarter than me um, surrounding me on the team. If someone came to us with that problem and said, listen, we want to track podcasts, we'll figure out a way to do it. And I, I can even think of some ways right now, but I don't want to give any way, any IP mm-hmm. on the podcast publicly. Um, <laughs> my attorneys, my counsel wouldn't be happy. The other thing is, um, what's that? You have to tell us afterwards because I'm intrigued. Yeah, yeah totally. <laughs> totally. Yeah, right. For you, because um, we want to be able to prove for, for CS2 how podcasts are working. So, um, <laughs> you know, it, it, it also really, you know, comes back to, um, you know, taking one thing we actually haven't even talked about is sequencing and coupling. So like where in the buying process is a podcast mm-hmm. most effective? Again, mm-hmm. attribution doesn't solve for this. It's not next best action. One of the things that predictive analytics can do is look at a podcast and say, you know, for different customer segments too, let's slice and dice it even further to be able to say where are podcasts either positively or negatively influential in the buying process. Um, and now go even a level deeper, who should be on the podcast? What content are we supposed to have on the podcast? Again, based on the buying cycle. So, um, you know, the podcast data, Charlie, it's going to be there. Um, and if it's not, then again, I, I push that back on the vendor and say, hey, let, let's come up with a creative way to get some of these data in there. Um, and, and you know what? There's another thing here. At the end of the day, I don't, wanna, I don't want it to seem like predictive analytics is going to be this robot, you know, AI that takes over the world. We're not there yet. I think someday in a few thousand years, maybe we will be there. I'm not worried about that. Um, but for right now, at least be directionally helpful. I think mm-hmm. that's what people need to understand is rather than guessing, we know we can't put all the data in the model. There are too many atoms in the universe to account for all the things, right? Let's at least focus on the data that we have. So Charlie, what I would say to you is if you were running a demand team and you were using podcasts, let's take the data you have today. Let's leverage that. 
And over the next six months, we will figure out how to bring podcasts in too. Um, and then we'll really start to understand how are they influencing buying behavior? Yeah. Yeah. I think, um, you know, all, all great points. I mean, um, the, what, what I'm hearing and what I definitely agree with is like, it's such a big problem and probably you know, part of the reason why maybe people jump ship and change jobs and get disillusioned because they haven't been able to crack the problem of like how to actually leverage leverage their data right because they're not data scientists they're not um analytics experts and you know people there are people obviously out there that do that but on a lot of teams they don't have that expertise in the team um so they they're like trying to piece things together with the data and then end up probably just creating more confusion than they do mm-hmm. um you know, actionable uh insight so a tool that's able to, you know, piece together a narrative for them. And then they still, they st- there will probably still be some art to art in the mix, right? It's, it's art and science and marketing. It's never probably, I mean, like you said, maybe in a couple of thousand years, it might be just science, but there's still going to be a little bit of art to figure out, okay, well, maybe we're not able to track podcasts now, but we are getting a sense that this is really, really helping us, um, uh, you know, attract attract well i'm, I'm glad you brought us. up the art component because i i think what's going to happen and this is a bit of a meta provocative thought you know a deep thought is that um i think what's going to happen in, in some ways you're already seeing it to start to happen in, in the bdc side machine learning predictive analytics are allowing us to get back to and have a renaissance with creative it's allowing us to do again more sort of you know and i'll use in air quotes real-time testing you know, so for a podcast, for example, if you're seeing in one of your customer segments that it's having a negative influence, well, then let's try and change the topic. Let's try and change the time of the podcast. Maybe it's a quick cast instead of a podcast. Can I trade that, trademark that? Has anybody come up with that yet? <laughs> uh, but as, I like it. You know, it, it, we're going to have a renaissance. I think what's going to happen is we're going to actually have creative marketers again. That's where I started in my career, you know, more like, hey, what does the creative look like? What does it sound like? What does it, what does it read like? Um, and I think machine learning is actually going to push us back to having that creative renaissance where, you know, we, we originally started our careers. I'm dating myself, but back on the creative side of marketing. Yeah, that's, I feel like that's a good place to end it. Um, I know we can keep 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 going over and I'm sure we're going to have you back uh, as a guest again. Um, but this is great. I think opened a lot of, um, you know, different doors into this conversation that we continue to have around reporting. But it was great to get insight in uh, from you around the predictive predictive analytics side. And um, yeah, so I just want to say thank you so much for sharing your um, you know your ideas and what you're seeing, and and also throwing it back to us too, which is great. Um, always like having those conversations. And for everyone who's listening, um, you can check out. Alex Krawczyk, um on LinkedIn. Uh, you can search for him there and follow him as well as go to clearly with a K, K-L-E-A-R-L-Y uh, dot com and check out what they're doing. And, um, you know, if you enjoyed this podcast, share it with your friends and coworkers um, and we'll see you on the next episode of Forward Thinking. Thanks so much.